Well, take a look with me at Hosea chapter 3. We'll be studying the whole of chapter 3. Look how short it is. Five verses. Some people have called this the romance of redemption. And you're going to see why as we dig in. I want to encourage you, if when I ask you to turn to Hosea 3, you didn't, um, to please turn with us. Because we're going to pick this apart. We're going to go phrase by phrase. And you're going to be lost if you don't have a Bible open. Um, if you brought a smartphone in with you, all you have to do is use that. If you don't have a physical Bible, you can have an electronic Bible. Just Google Hosea 3, and you'll be able to take advantage of the opportunity. The major message of the minor prophets, responding to those. This is one of those chapters that response is required, and you'll see why in just a second. You know, there are two stories in the Bible that are very similar. One is a Jewish woman, and one is a Gentile woman. The Gentile woman is named Ruth, and the, Gen- the Jewish woman is named Gomer. And in their stories, both of them had to have a husband who stepped in. Ruth had a husband by the name of Boaz, and Gomer has a husband by the name of Hosea. These, these men step up for the ladies that God had given them to redeem them and to make them right in their relationship with God. Now, this text does what the Bible often does with um, stories like this. They, the Bible will take great, immense ideas and put them at arm's length through a story, to put them into simple stories. These five verses of this small little chapter is the story of the entire Bible from Genesis 12 to the second coming of Christ at the end of your Bible. We started in chapter 1 a few weeks back looking at a very strange relationship. Hosea, this prophet, was told by God, initiated by God, to marry a prostitute. A preacher and a prostitute. Strange relationship because her name means complete. And she was complete with God, yet she was unfaithful, like Israel was. Right? She had kids that were not his. They did not look like Hosea. Like Israel, Israel had birthed illegitimate children in illegitimate ways, and they did not look like God. They weren't godly. She had wandered, and her kids didn't look like her husband, and then she gave them, God is the one who gave them names, to point to how far and surprising it was for her to do what she did. After all that God did, it was, it was a strange thing for her to do what she did. In chapter 2, we see God stepping in in a very uh, surprising way. Chapter 2 is about the judgments that are going to come, but yet what God will do in light of those. He, he won't react in a scorched earth campaign. He will react in a series of grand romantic gestures. He will woo her. He will protect her. She will run that way and he will run after her. And no matter how far she runs, he will run after her. It's encouraging. So God appeals to Israel in chapter 2 to come back. Chapter 2 last week was a re-betrothal, right? She had been divorced by this husband, and now she is being remarried to him. Chapter 3 escalates the shock value. You go from strange to surprising to shocking. In this chapter, this woman has gone and prostituted herself in complete indentured servitude. She sells herself to one of her lovers and says, hey, I will be your lover on retainer. 
I will be permanently your lover. And God, and through Hosea, has to come in and buy her off, his own wife, buy her off of the slave market block. Shocking. All right, so this chapter is a romance of redemption, a radical romance. It's unbelievable what God does and what Hosea does in your life and through this chapter. This chapter will take one word and put it forth, a Hebrew word, and it'll say, this is the word that you need to highlight. It's the Hebrew word hesed. In, in English, we struggle with the definition. We call it loving kindness because it's such a compound phrase, but it means love that is loyal love, right? Hesed love is when you're faithful to someone, not because of the someone, but because of your vows. And with that, we, we introduced that last week. If you were here with us last week, we said relationships, godly, good relationships are built upon promise, not passion. They're built upon commitments, not love itself. What did we say? It's not your love that sustains your commitment last week. We studied this. It's your commitment that sustains your love, and that's huge. God says in that chapter and in this chapter in, in a very picturesque way through a narrative, five-verse narrative, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. No matter how many times I have to repurchase you, 70 times seven, I will forgive you. I am yours and you are mine and nothing will separate you from the love of Christ. That's what this chapter says. In a way that a preacher could never. In a way that a, a, a simple memory Bible verse could never. He tells a story. So this week, we're gonna see that that committed love is priceless but it's worth every price. That committed love is priceless, and therefore it's worth any kind of price that you could pay to get there, even though you can't afford it. You know, this kind of love is a visual aid for your, this narrative is a visual aid. It is, in that sense, a narrative that is quite remedial. If you haven't got at this point in your life that God loves you and wants a relationship with you and he will pay any price, go any distance, forgive any sin to get you. If you don't know that, then this is the remedial lesson here. Two angles of application in this visual aid. One is theological, one is relational. The theological one is that this hesed love is between God and you. He has made a covenant with you. He wants you, he is he has offered what we call the new covenant, that if you will enter into this covenant, he will be yours, you will be his, and you will have hesed love. That will redeem your passions. But for some of you, you're there, and it's all your other relationships that need a lot of work. And the truth is, God wants you to be a river of this hesed love to flow through you to others. And so the relational angle of application is not just the romance of redemption, how romantic it is that Jesus did what he did, but it's the Redemption of romance. You have grown cold to God. You started out, man, it was a flush of first love. You, you were in right with God, and in, even in the case of a married person here, your relationship with your spouse started out so good, but you have fallen into some bad pattern of humdrum, mediocre relationship. And this is the kind of, not just redemptive gesture, but a romantic gesture you can do in your relationships to shock them like a defibrillator back to life. Wouldn't that be good? Do you even want that in your relationships? Do you want to get out of a rut and move back into a place of health? 
This is the kind of story. This is the kind of truths. This is the kind of love. This Hesed love is the kind of love that shocks people back into play. So we're going to look at that, starting in verse 1. Let's look at these five verses. And first, we're going to look at love's initiative. Notice, as in chapter 1, as in chapter 2, who takes the initiative? Then the Lord said to me, go again. Do you feel that word? It's mentioned five times in this book. Do it again. Go at him again. Love her again. Woo her again. Try again. God is going to go whatever distance it takes. Go again. Seventy times seven. I will not let her go. She's mine, and I will go at her again, and I will work in her life again. Love a woman. Notice it says love not Gomer, but love that woman. He knows who it is. Um, It would be weird for him to mention an unnamed woman if it weren't Gomer. Some commentators balance and battle this back and forth to say maybe this was a another woman. It'd also be God conscribing him into some sort of adultery relationship if he says, hey, go and love another woman. Find you a new wife. That's not what God's doing here. Go again, love a woman. Notice, you know it's Gomer because of the next verses, next phrases. Who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress? Who's that? Who is that? Come on, react. You know, you know this can be a responsive kind of thing between you and me. Gomer or Israel, okay? Loved by her husband. Now, people, people contend with this as well. St- Bible students point out that this phrase here for loved by another, it doesn't have the idea of the word husband here. She is loved by another. It, if you have a Ryrie study Bible, if you scoot on down to the study note, you'll see that Charles Ryrie says that this is her paramour. You know what that word means? I remember when I was in the 90s and I read this text and I read in there a paramour. I'm like, I don't know what a paramour is. A paramour is an illicit lover, a false lover. Uh, currently on Broadway in New York City, there is Cirque de Soleil's paramour. And it's about illicit love in a relationship that is not appropriate. And in the process here, this is, many commentators say that this is re- addressing not the fact that she has somebody else that loves her besides Hosea, but that she has had many people that have loved her sexually. And so he says, go love a woman who has been loved by a false lover and is yet then, because of that reason, an adulteress. Loved but a sinner. Sound familiar? That's you. Those things in your life that you've given your life to, that's, those are paramours. They are false lovers. And they will not be sustainable. They will not go the distance. Look at the rest of this. Almost comical the way it ends. Even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, this is an object lesson. This is a drama, a story that is meant to be a teaching tool. So this is about Israel and and God. Even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and they love raisin cakes. What? Is God really that upset over your dessert? What is this? Well, when it comes to raising cakes, this is a paraphrase of a Hebrew idiom that refers to an aphrodisiac, an Old Testament Viagra, right? And in the case of pagan worship, they would shape these raisin cakes in the form of male organs, right? And when you were carrying this around, heading to worship, it made people take notice. You come out of the local corner convenience store carrying this, you're 
your, your people will notice you, right? And they, they were headed in this process to Baal. Now, what does that have to do with Baal? You know, you heard me talk about temple prostitutes in the previous messages. This is what they believed. The people wanted instant gratification. When they needed rains, they didn't want to wait on the Lord and trust the Lord in no matter what. They wanted instant gratification. And so according to the pagans around, that if you went to the place of worship with these other pagans, that Baal is the God of nature. He's the God of fertility. And if you would have sex with the temple prostitute, it would incite Baal to sleep with Ashtoreth and give birth to rain. Right? And it gave people something to do. Does that sound familiar in our culture? That we don't want to wait. We want instant gratification. And we're going to do whatever it takes to get there. And we're going to scheme and we're going to manipulate. And we're going to do and fight and move and do whatever lifting we have. We're not going to be people that are dependent. We're going to be free and accomplish things through instant gratification. That's what they were doing. We do it in our culture. So it might sound bizarre, but it's a part of the false religions of that area to push this envelope of sexuality. Here's the point of verse one. She is impoverished and ashamed. Matter more to the fact, she's unashamed. She's gotten to the point where she and her lewdness is unashamed. She is gonna sell herself and she's gonna call it success. She's gonna sell herself to the highest bidder and she's going to say, it's just what I'm doing to survive. She is impoverished and ashamed or eventually unashamed. That's what sin does to you. It takes from you. It doesn't give to you. It's where it leaves you. It leaves you impoverished and eventually unashamed of your sin, where you come out of closets and you make parades in your sin. Does that sound familiar? Verse two, here's love's economics in the middle of that craziness that we've seen for two chapters. Here comes God again and again. Hosea, Verse two, so I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Now, as I read that, as a Bible student, you have three questions, okay? Three questions. One, why did he have to buy her? It's his wife. Number two, look at the currency, look at the economics. 15 shekels of silver, money, and a homer and a half of barley, crops. Why did he have to bring money and crops? What's the deal there? All right, let me unpack this for you. First off, what has happened in her life to get her to this point? By the fact that it is him having to buy her and the fact that the word here for buy is the word kara and it has, it reinforces the idea because of, of its language that he is buying her from another person who's pimping her. He is purchasing her sexual favors back. Should a husband have to do that? No, but this is the underlying root language of this text, that this is a woman who has, as we would assume, she got so low, so down, that in, she sold herself, as people could, into indentured servitude. And she sold herself, as she only knows how to do, to be a full-time prostitute on retainer. And he goes down to wherever she's on the block, selling herself, and he says, I want her completely to me. He buys her twice. He purchased her at a dowry price when he married her, and he purchased her at this place of slavery. So he bought her twice. Now, what about this purchase? Money and crops or goods. 
It's as if he, and this is my take, he has had to negotiate for her. Now, what you might not know is that this is a cheap price. He had some change in his pocket and some crops on his wagon, and he said, hey, I'll give you the change in my pocket, and I'll give you this little bit of grain that I have. Is that good enough? And he says, yes. This is about 30 shekels. 15 shekels plus a homer and a half is about 15 shekels. That's 30 shekels together. That's, a, that's the price you, of an old, in the Old Testament that you pay for a slave that has been gored by an ox. If your ox gores a, a, a slave, <clears throat> you have to pay the person who got, whose, whose slave got hurt, you gotta pay him 30 shekels. When your servants does that, you're basically saying that is a worthless servant. That is not much money. Incidentally, does that remind you of somebody else? Somebody else who was sold for 30 pieces of silver, who was regarded as worthless. A man by the name of Judas sells his friend Jesus for 30 shekels of silver. It wasn't even worth the money, so they fell out at the potter's field, which is the pauper's field, because it was just not much money. He gave up his savior for not much money. Also, it reminds me of Joseph's brothers. You remember where the price paid to the, from the Egyptians to sell Joseph into slavery? About 10 shekels less, 20 shekels. The point is that this woman can't get any lower than she's getting here. Her life has become so cheap. It's the story of a wealthy Jewish man, Jewish son, who is now feeding pigs and envying what the pigs are eating. Can't get any lower. That's how low he had gotten. It's the story of the great king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. When he rejects God at every turn, he goes so low as to be out in a field chewing grass. He should be king, but he's chewing grass like a cow. Right? That's as low and as humble as you can get. And he buys her. He haggles and he buys her at this place. So, so, so the point of this verse is the cheapness of her life. She has been running after self-gratification, after self-gratification, selling herself for a little bit of money. And God has come into her life. Jose has come into her life and paid that price, and he's paid it over and over and over again. It is, this is, yes, about the cheapness of her life, but it is also primarily about the radical grace of Hosea, that he buys her twice. He paid her dowry, now he is paying her, her emancipation price. This anticipates what the Lord Jesus will do in your life. He will create you in creation, he will knit you together in your mother's womb, and he will say, I made the merchandise, I own, and then you say, no you don't. He says, my will be done. You say, no, my will be done, and God says, okay, let's see how you do running your life. And you go selling yourself to the cheapest car, house, job, girl, man, whatever pleasure, hobby, vacation. You live for those things and then the house grows old. The car needs to be replaced. The vacation's over and it is not sustainable. And then at some point you recognize you are lost and in need of a rescuer. And so the one who created you, who should have owned you at the beginning of your life, has to repurchase you. And the redemptive price, the currency of your rescue is nothing less than the blood of Jesus. And he bleeds and dies and says, that's the price. Not some cheap 30 shekels, but the blood of the divine one so that your blood doesn't have to be shed. This is beautiful. This is beautiful. Look at verse three. 
So we've seen love's initiation. We've seen love's economy. Here's love's isolation. Then I said to her, you shall stay with me. With me. Abide with me. For many days you shall not play the harlot anymore. Nor shall you have a man. You shall not know any men. You shall be uh, completely abstained from sexuality. And so I also will be towards you. Hosea's actions anticipate what the Lord does. This is talking about Gomer being sequestered in a room, sequestered in a house. And he says, we, you have this horrible unhealthiness, this dysfunctionality and sexuality. And so we're gonna completely remove it. You gotta go through detox. And matter of fact, we're not even gonna have husband-wife relationships. I'm gonna abstain because I'm willing to pay whatever price and we are gonna go the distance because you need detox. This is talking about Israel going into exile. And Hosea lays down these restrictions. You know, those restrictions are only matched by the love commitment that Hosea has, right? He is willing not to give anything that costs him nothing. He wants to give them her something that shows her his intention. And he is just waiting for a change of heart. Look at verse four. Here's the explanation of the hedge. For the sons of Israel will remain for many days. Okay, here's the prophecy. What Gomer and Hosea are doing as she's sequestered in a room by herself, abstaining from sex, it is pointing to what God's doing in Israel. For the sons of Israel remain for many days without. And look at this list. Are you looking? Look at the list. Just scoot on down. Most of those are positive, aren't they? Kings, princes, sacrifices, pillars, ephod. That last one is intrinsically evil, but the others aren't. So let me explain this. Kings or princes. The preference of government of kings and princes was common in Israel. It was reflected in God's own leadership. He wanted to be, and he rightfully was their king, but they said, we need a human king. So the idea of monarchy over Israel was God's idea. And they rejected him and said, no, we don't want that king, we want that king. Oh, we don't want that king, we want this king. But the absence of king and prince implies the loss of national sovereignty. And to this day, I know Israel in 1948 has become a nation again, but national sovereignty is still threatened at every time. Almost 2,000 years, they had no king or prince. They still don't. I mean, there's not a king or a prince in Israel. There's no king on the throne in Israel. So even to this day, what about sacrifice? Well, sacrifice could be good or evil, couldn't it, can it? It depends on what you're sacrificing to. Depending on whom or with what attitude you're making a sacrifice. If it's a sacrifice to Yahweh with a broken heart, well, that's good. But a sacrifice to Baal, well, that's bad, evil. What about a sacred pillar? As Israel becomes a nation before they come into the promised land, even after they come into the promised land, they build pillars, and there's nothing intrinsically evil about stacking rocks like a memorial to, to mark a grave, to put up a monument, to mark a divine appearance, to make a covenant. They did that. We don't know how, in ways that are unclear, a stone pillar representing the deity of the male deity, Baal, representing kind of a phalanx, a, a male organ, was, became the signpost of Baal worship. And it's where, under large trees, they would set up these pillars. And this is where you'd go to the temple prostitutes. 
All right? And you bring your raisin cakes. So therefore, these pillars are forbidden in Israelite worship. They're forbidden. One test of the king's faithfulness. As a king would come on, the Lord determined if he's faithful by if he destroyed those pillars or not. Look at the next word, ephod. Ephod is, if you don't know it, that's the sacred garments of the high priest. And notice it's in tandem here between ephod and idol. Um, I think what God is pointing out is that the ephod had these stones in the pocket. And the priest, one of his jobs was to give divine direction through the casting of lots. And depending on what he picked out of his pocket, he would give through providence a help you make a decision. The idols, the household idols here, the teraphim as they are known in Hebrew, the teraphim were for direction. They were to be worshipped when you didn't know which way to go. And so he's saying, you're going to be directionless. You're going to be worshipless. That's the point of this section. By analogy, Israel would be into a time without monarchy, without priesthood, without direction, and absolutely without their idols. They would be detoxed from those things. Verse 5. Here's the final verse. Look at love's expectation. As he puts him in timeout, says verse 5, afterwards, after a time... Now it's been 2,000 years. Afterwards, the sons of Israel, the Jews will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. Who's that? Who's David their king? Jesus. It's the messianic prophecy unfolding right here in verse 5. It's not the house of David. It's specifically David's king. There will come a day when they will, look, return and seek Jesus. And they will come Trembling. Do you notice what repentance looks like always? Trembling and seeking. You come with a keen awareness that God is God and you are not. And but by his grace, he'd snuff you out. But by his grace, he'd remove you from the earth. He'd remove your family. You'd lose your job. You'd lose your health. And you come in trembling, knowing that you do not mess with God. It's a healthy fear. And you've been messing with him. You've been spurning his love. You've been, you've been cheating on God. You know, when I think about it, <laughs> I think in the American church, we don't cheat on God. I think most of the time we cheat with God. In our culture, we see cheating as some seedy hotel by the hour and you meet a lover over there and, and then you go back to your family and you act like nothing happened. I don't think... I don't think God in most of our relationships is the house and some other lover is in the hotel. I think it's flipped. I think we come here sadly to churches and we cheat on our other lovers that are really six days of the week. Those are the things we're living for. And and they're sophisticated lovers. They're, They're jobs and houses that we're investing in, and hobbies that we have, and those are the things that get all of our energy, we worship them. We give them our passion. We, we, we scream in elation when they win, whether it's some team or some company or some stock, and we get all excited, and then we sneak over to, and this sounds horrible. I know it's meant to be shocking. This text is meant to be shocking. We sneak over to a CD church, And we say in in privacy. No one else knows that we're lovers of Jesus. No one knows that we are except the people of our church, the other people in the hotel. Ouch. 
That's this text. But praise the Lord, there's verse five. They returned to Jesus. Look at the end. And they will come trembling to the Lord and his goodness in the last days. This is what we call a premillennial text. That there will come a great golden age as Jesus comes as King David of old. He comes and the Jews return in mass. After a time of desolation, we, we've come to know is the time of tribulation. This seven years of it hitting complete prophetic fan. God will get a hold of Israel. And there will come a thousand year reign of King David, Jesus, in the end of days, the last of days. This word return is the key word of the whole book of Hosea. You might circle it, start. It's mentioned 22 times. I can't say that to you because some of you have never come to him. Some of you have never come. So it's not return, it's respond. This is lavish love. This is powerful love. This is incredible romance of redemption. Jesus is willing to pay for you how many ever times it takes. He's willing to go the distance, 70 times seven. He wants you. When Israel repents and returns to the Lord, then the Lord will return and bless Israel. God has returned to his place in heaven. He has left Israel to herself until she seeks him again. All right, let's bring this home. Let's apply it. Ready? Number one, what is the theological application? The grand theological timeless truth is that divine love pays the price twice. That's the timeless truth. In the romance of redemption, God pays for his bride twice. He pays a dowry, he pays a dowry, he pays a dowry. In the case of redemption, he pays for creation and then he pays for redemption. He pays for you twice. That is a grand redemptive gesture. He's willing to pay whatever price. Number two, human restoration often requires isolation. Can you say that out loud with me? Some of you really need to hear this. You need detox from the things that get you and own you. If you really want God to own you, you gotta get into detox. You gotta go to a rehab of these things and abstain completely. Say it out loud. Human restoration often requires isolation. Do you believe that? I know for me it did. Whatever it is that you're selling yourself at, whatever happy hour you go to, whatever self-medication, if it's not God, you need to detox completely from it. Not forever, maybe, but for now, yes. However long it takes till you have a change of heart and you don't go sell yourself to that thing. That's huge. And then number three, human repentance always, always, everybody say always, always requires fear and seeking. When I see somebody come into the commons area and they got that look of fear and that hunger in their mouth and the way that they're saying things, I'm like, that person's repentant. You haven't changed. Nothing's changed until you've changed. And how do you get to that place of change? Fear and seeking. God is not done with Israel. He's not done with you. You've got more places that you can reject. This is a complete turning. To return is a 180 degree complete turning. You turn away, you turn to. I don't know what that is for you, but I guarantee you every single soul in this, in this building right here can turn from and to. Turn from and to with fear and seeking. That's how repentance works. Now in terms of relationships, we can, we can give. This is, this is a text about Israel 
being put onto the sidelines to go to a, through a detox, to have, having ha- had this lavish payment given to them. But it is a timeless theological truth that all relationships work like this. So this is the romance of redemption, but this is the redemption of romance. So many of you, you've grown cold to God, you've grown cold to your spouse. And that's a cycle we all go through. All of us struggle with that. So number one, I'm telling you, this kind of hesed love breaks deadlocks. It breaks deadlocks. The church, like Israel, has struggled through the centuries with keeping its passions in relationship to her covenant Lord. The story of God's people, Old and New Testament, is one of passionate first love and then the giving away of that to some humdrum sameness some humdrum institutionalization where you just go through the motions. Why did, did you get up excited to come here? Or was it like pulling teeth to come worship? That's a great indication if you're in a deadlock of humdrum sameness and institutionalization. Who wants to be in an institution? I don't. Marriage can feel like that too, right? Feels like you're in an institution. You've been institutionalized. Who wants that? No, no. This same kind of hesed love is the defibrillator of a marriage that's grown cold. It's the defibrillator of a church that's grown cold to her love. Blessedly, God does not abandon his people when they lose the flush of their first love. He is there again and again, wooing that church, wooing them back. And you should be the same in your marriage and in your relationships. The restorative love is as vigorous. His restorative love is as vigorous as his electing love. He wants you. Here's number two. Broken trust takes time. I tell this to many a couple who come in with all sorts of breakings of their violations of their covenant. Their covenant has been killed. It's been cut off in some death you know, some death nail. The nail has been sunk deep into their, into their marriage and they're like, How, what do we do? I said, well, it's gonna take a lot of time. But you can have progress. In the case of the restoring love of Israel, the northern kingdom had come to an end. Gone are her rulers who led her astray. But praise the Lord, those 10 tribes will re, be reconvened at the end of days. The existence of Gomer assures the reader that the nation will not disappear. Number three, not only does, does love, this kind of divine, hesed love, break deadlocks, not only does it, does it take a lot of time, though, to rebuild trust, when it comes down to it, the, the result is worth it all. Say this out loud with me. The result is worth it all. It's returning love. Returning love for Israel, responding love for you. What's your response to this today? Do you have a light amen, 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 Jesus, thank you for dying, thank you for doing it? Or do you have a hearty amen, Jesus, thank you? How do you respond? I'll show you a great way to respond. Turn to Hosea 14. Go to the end of your book. This is Hosea's message to you. It's to Israel, but this is timeless here. Hosea, just look at verse 1 and 2. This is... This is a sinner's prayer. This is a Jewish prayer. This is a Gentile prayer. This prayer is good for anybody. O Israel, return to the Lord your God. Take with you words. Amen. Turn to the Lord. Action. 
Say unto him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. That's good. So to summarize, God is gracious. And no matter what name our birth has given us, he can change that name. He can give you a new beginning. No matter what your friends call you, oh, she's this, he's that. No matter what your reputation precedes you here today, you walked in this place, God can change your name. He will pay whatever price to make you what? What are you? In Christ, you're faithful, forgiven, godly, man of integrity. He can give you that kind of, wouldn't you like that? He can make you a lover, a passionate pursuer of God. He can make you one that is trustworthy, willing you being his to the point of being trustworthy so he's willing to take you into battle, to take all those things you complain about and actually you be the change agent for those things instead of waiting for some president to make that decision. That's what I love about November 9th. No matter who we elect on November 8th, Jesus is still Lord of all. And it is a mess that we are in as a nation. No doubt you've had your own frustrations at this year's politics. I saw a sign at a church local said, pray, vote, pray. <laughs> pray, 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 vote. Pray, 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 pray. I'd add about 12 more. Vote, vote. But acknowledge that God is sovereign. God is gracious, and no matter what name our birth has given us, he can change it and give you a new beginning. It's worth any price. Let me end with a modern-day Gomer story in my heart. I've always loved this story about a man who, in trying to rescue his parents from a burning house, true story, he rushed in. His parents died. He tried, and they died anyway. But in the process, he got disfigured. He was so distraught over his disfigurement that he locked himself in his room and would let nobody come in, not even his own wife. So she goes to Dr. Maltz, a plastic surgeon, true story, for help. And she shows Dr. Maltz his pictures. He told her, he said, don't worry, I can restore her face. I can restore what was marred by this world. The wife was unenthused. That's not why she came. Her husband had repeatedly refused any help and she knew that he would do again and again. She would, he would continue to refuse help and so she told the doctor. And when he asked her, why are you here then? She said, I want you to disfigure my face so I can be like him. If I could share his pain, then maybe he will let me back into his life. Dr. Waltz was shocked he denied her request, of course, but he was so moved by that. He said, I want to come to your house immediately. And he came to the door of her husband, second floor. He said, hey, I'm Dr. Malt. I'm a plastic surgeon. I can restore your face. No answer. He knocked again. Please come out. Again, no response. Still speaking to the door, Dr. Maltz told the man what his wife was wanting to do. She wants me to disfigure your, her face to make her like yours in the hopes that you will let her back into your life. 
That's how much she loves you. There was a brief moment of silence and the door started turning, the doorknob. The way the woman felt for her husband is the way God feels for you. Except it wasn't just words. He actually did it. He let his face be marred. Jesus came to this planet and put on an ugly human face in a first century Jewish body in a dirty world. And 33 years in the prime of his life, let himself be cut down like a fresh shoot to be hung on a criminal's cross that he didn't deserve. And he said, I do it willingly so that they'll pay attention to me. Not so that they'll come and worship like this and ignore him Monday through Saturday, but to be lovers. That kind of romantic gesture, you better with fear and seeking, you better take pay notice of. Take attention, pay attention to that. Notice it, own it, let it be the thing that makes your life mean something. This is who I am. This is who so many of us are. He loves you with a redeeming love. How do you respond to that? With passion. He wants to redeem your passion. Could you stand with me? How do you hear that and sit down, right? Can you just raise a hand? The postures of prayer are powerful. Let's pray. Jesus, take me. I'm yours. Love me as you've loved me. I want to love you back as, as worthy of that love. I know I'm going to fail you, but Lord, I thank you that again and again, you come to me, you receive me. Lord, redeem me and my passions. If there's anybody here today who can't call themselves yours, I pray that that hand being raised is the prayer of the heart of one who wants to be your lover. Take away my sin. Make me your child. Pay for me twice like I just heard. I didn't realize you created me. I didn't realize you want to recreate me in Christ, but I want it now. I'll respond now. And may my colors shine true this week as a lover of Jesus the Christ. Amen. My King, amen.